Hello and welcome to the Saint and Sinner podcast. This is a reformed podcast for God's people to find their rest in the finished work of Christ. My name is Daniel and I'm joined by my co-host Brian and we're pretty excited this morning. This has been in the works for, for a while and uh, so thanks for, for tuning in to this first episode. Today we're, we're going to be discussing a, a whole whole host of things. The main thing is what what are we, who are we? And honestly, why have we set up another flaming podcast? <laughs> like, if you surf the internet, you, you'll be swamped with so many other podcasts. Brian, what, why do we need another one? Well, we feel that there is a need for a podcast targeting Britain. And I know that sounds a bit weird coming from an American, if you can tell from my voice. But that's what we feel. We have a heart to reach the UK um, with a podcast from a reformed perspective that uh, reaches those who are failing to find rest in Jesus Christ. And so we think there are many wonderful podcasts out in the United States that are doing just that. But we think there is room for a podcast speaking into the needs and the cultures of the UK. And so both Daniel and I live here. We live in Suffolk, England, and we feel that we are in a particular position to be able to do that. Yep. And so we want to really laser in on this idea of rest and peace and security in Jesus. And we're convinced that the heart of the history of redemption is the cross and the great exchange where we're justified, not because of anything in us, but because of the perfect righteousness of Christ. And he is condemned because of our sin. We believe that that's at the heart of salvation history. And what, uh, as Christians, the, the very thing that we need to continually talk about and grasp and be washed over with. And so St. Augustine once famously said of God that you've made us for yourself and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. And so the main aim of this podcast is to create a space for weary and restless sinners. And you know, Brian, you and I, we've been there too. I'm sure that the listeners have. It's for those who are just a little bit tired of the just do better message that we hear. It's for those who are really worn down by the by trying to climb the, the ladder of spiritual success. It's for those who recognize that the life coach Jesus, you know, that's cheering us on at the side, doesn't cut it, doesn't cut the mustard. And so we believe that when Jesus said it's finished, he actually meant it. When Paul says there's no condemnation for us, we really believe there's no judgment left to pay. And so along the way, we'll, we'll talk about things like justification and the law, the gospel, covenant theology. But, but the heart of all that we want to discuss is the person and work of Christ and for weary pilgrims to find their rest in him. I think what we feel is when we look around at the climate of Christianity, we're a bit concerned. There seems to be this air of individuals putting the ball back in their own courts, feeling like there's more for them to complete, feeling like there's something that they have to do before they can be confident in the finished work of Jesus Christ as if his work was not sufficient. And one of these areas came up actually a few weeks ago with Daniel and I surfing the endless areas of social media. And there was a post that came up where somebody began to question a, a comment or a quote that Daniel provided. Do you want to speak on that for a minute? Yeah, I'd love to. So I put a post up on, on social media that I thought wasn't going to be very controversial at all. <laughs> To be honest, it was by a Lutheran uh, theologian from the 19th century by the name of Walther. I think I'm pronouncing that right. And he said something along the lines of, the gospel makes no demands. 
It, it's simply a believe and a receive. And he gave the illustration of it's kind of like a the demands that you make to a hungry person, where you say, like, come to my table and eat my food and drink my drink. And Wolfer says, this is what the gospel is, a kind invitation to partake of heavenly blessings. And so I, I thought that was pretty self-explanatory. I didn't think there'd be any pushback. I thought I might get just, you know, one or two likes. <laughs> um, but I didn't think there'd be any pushback from people. But it ended up being quite a, a long debate between uh, a couple of different guys. So one of the guys said that the gospel says do, i.e. obey. And, and then this person quoted 2 Thessalonians 1 verses 8 and 9, which says this, those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord. And so he's saying, no, the gospel does make demands. It tells us to obey it and to do. Brian, do we do? Do we obey the gospel? What does that even mean? What's Paul talking about in that passage? Depends what you mean by obey. So right. if you mean by obey that the gospel is a message different from the one that Paul proclaimed, then we have issue with that. We only have to look at Paul's letter to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 15, where he unpacks the gospel in its entirety, and he tells them the message that he preached to them at first. And it wasn't a message about the law and kind of certain moral commands that they have to uphold. No, it was a declaration of good news that Jesus Christ came in the flesh, lived a life, died for sin, and was risen from the grave. Now, that is a message, a declaration of something that has already been accomplished, something that has already taken place. And so, how do you obey something like that? How do you obey a message of actual events? You believe it. <laughs> yeah, that's right. It's like news, isn't it? So, the gospel doesn't mean good advice. It's not telling you to do something. It's, it's good news. And what do you do with news? As you, as you rightly say, you receive it. And so it'd be like a messenger from Caesar coming and saying, look, Caesar has vanquished the enemy. He's conquered. Now receive that message with joy, with jubilation. You know, Absolutely. The gospel is, is happy tidings, as Tyndale would say. Uh, one of the other comments was, was this. Someone said, are you sure that's true? Jesus said, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself. He then quoted, go and sin no more. And then finally he quoted, if you do not forgive people their trespasses, neither will your father forgive yours. And so this guy was saying, look, there seems to be demands in the gospel. If you don't pick up your cross and deny yourself, then you cannot be saved. Or if you don't forgive people, then you can't be saved. Is the gospel that I forgive people, Brian? Absolutely not. That why? is why. That is a a outward working of belief in the gospel. You know, Christians are those who have tasted the forgiveness and grace of God and are moved by that love to show the same kind of grace and forgiveness to those around them. But the act of forgiving, or the act of putting to death our own flesh, or dying to ourselves, giving up everything to follow Jesus, that cannot save. Um, that is the law. And the law is not the standard by which we measure our own salvation. Yeah, so it's a bit like the rich young ruler, isn't it? So I think that's the famous passage. And so a rich young ruler comes up to Jesus and says, look, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And I love Jesus' response. He says, well, you know the law. <laughs> you know the commandments. If you want to get to heaven, you know them. Do not lie. Do not steal. Do not, do not cheat. 
And how does the, the rich young ruler respond? He's like, nailed it, man. 10 out of 10. I've kept these from my youth. Yeah. I've ticked all of those boxes. What what more can since I do? Since I was a teenager, I've been doing this. No, man. Since since I came out of the womb, Absolutely. I've been doing this. Well, what's amazing is you, you see from the rich young ruler, the way he opens up his question. Good teacher. This man doesn't even know who Jesus is. This is their first encounter. He's still testing the waters of, of this rabbi going around making these teachings. I don't know who you are, but I'm going to call you good. Because in his eyes, there's a lot of good people in the world, and he's one of them. What does Jesus say? No. Yeah, that's there's right. There's no one good but God alone. That's right. So Jesus responds by saying, well, this one thing you lack then. You sell all that you have, give to the poor, come follow me, and you'll have eternal life. And it says the rich young ruler went away sad. And, and how that's sometimes pitched, I think. I know John MacArthur's written a book called The Gospel According to Jesus. And in this book, John MacArthur will say, well, that's what you need to do to inherit eternal life. You need to sell all that you have and follow Jesus, and then you'll have life. Or how it's often pitched is that you need to at least be willing to give up all that you have and follow Jesus, and you'll have life. But Jesus isn't saying that, is he? Absolutely not. I mean, if you look at the way that this unpacks, right? Good teacher, you know, why do you call me good? There's only one good. It's God alone. And then the rich young ruler said, well, I've kept the law for my youth. I'm good. I'm good too. You know, only God is good. Me too. And then he moves on and he, and Jesus kind of hammers in another point. And, and what we think as Christians sometimes in, in the wider evangelical world is, well, Jesus must be moving on now. He's, he's moved on from the law. He's now going to the gospel. This is a gracious message. He's, he's given him the law and the man said he can't do it. Now he's moving on to the new. He said he could do it. Oh yeah. The man said he could do it. And now he's moving on to the new revelation of Jesus. But what, what's actually taking place here is more law. It's actually the heart of the law. What are the two greatest commandments of God? Love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. So Jesus looks at this rich young ruler who thinks that he's good, who thinks he's upholding the law and fulfilling it. And he puts a mirror right up against his face and says, look in, you are not good. You are still a failure. You have not fulfilled the main two laws, the, the primary laws, love God, love neighbor. If you did love your neighbor, you'd sell your possessions and give to the poor. You don't. That's right. Yeah. So it's not saying that this is some extra thing that you need to do on top of the Ten Commandments in order to attain eternal life. Jesus is showing him, you're not good. You can't do it. And I think that's proven, isn't it, with the passage that comes after as Jesus is talking with his disciples. And they're, they're pretty perplexed by the whole thing. They're really worried because they say, look, if who then can be saved if not this guy? And Jesus says, with, with man, it is impossible, but not with God. All things are possible with God. Now, you have to ask the question, why did the disciples respond that way? If you look back to the context of, of the ancient Greco-Roman world and the, and the Jewish tradition, there would have been this assumption that if you had wealth, you lived a good life, morally upright, you were taught the law since you were youth, you never had uh, a point in your life where you wanted for anything. So you didn't have to steal. You didn't have to break God's commandments. Well, you were looked at by everyone as being blessed by God. And that was a sign of being blessed. You, you had material wealth and gain in this world. So God blessed you. And all of a sudden, Jesus just says, this man can't enter heaven. It's impossible. So what do, what do the rest of the disciples think? If you're hearing this message and you're thinking, okay, who's going to make it in? Who's going to make it into heaven and gain eternal life? Well, it's that guy. It's the rich young ruler. He's blessed. And all of a sudden, Jesus tears that down and says, no, that's impossible. So now you think, as a disciple, 
well, what hope do I have? If the guy who's blessed by God, the one who has all of his accounts in order, if he can't make it in, then my situation is desperately hopeless. But what does Jesus say? Not possible with man, but possible with God. And as we follow his thinking, and he finishes off that, that portion of the parable, he takes his 12, his 12 disciples in verse 31, and what does he say to them? See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished, for he will be delivered over to the Gentiles, and will be mocked, and shamefully treated, and spat upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him, and on the third day he will rise. So, not you, not your own efforts, impossible with men, possible with God, through what? The gospel through his life, death, and resurrection. That's the only way. And that's the message of the, of the Bible. And what we don't need to do is mix the two messages together. This proclamation of law that condemns us and this proclamation of good news. They're not two things that we're supposed to intertwine so that we can't recognize one from the other. No, they're separate. The law is distinct from the gospel. But the law drives us to the need that the gospel brings. Yep. Yeah, so we see the same thing with the parable of the Good Samaritan where a lawyer comes up to Jesus and says, again, what must I do to be saved? What must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, well, you tell me, what does the law say? <laughs> and the lawyer says, well, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, strength, and soul, and love your neighbor as yourself. I think he probably heard that from Jesus. Okay. He's parroting back his words. And I love Jesus' response again. It's, yeah, that's it. Yeah, do that and you'll live, you know. And what the lawyer then says is, well, who then is my neighbor? Why, He's really why, asking. Why does he ask yeah, that? Because he, he, because he wants to lower the bar of the law. He wants to make it easier and achievable. Really, he's asking, who isn't my neighbor? You know, let's lower this thing <laughs> so I can love the people in my own friendship circle and the people that are like me and smell like me, but certainly not those stinky Samaritans over there, you know, or, or those, those pagans down the road. And so Jesus tells this parable of the Good Samaritan, and probably will know that well. It's in Luke chapter 10. And at the end, Jesus says, go and do likewise. Now, how is this passage often taught? And I think it's something like this. You're a bad guy, now go and be a good guy. Or you need to go and be a good Samaritan. Now, my problem with that, and obviously there's a sense in which that's true, we ought to go and be good Samaritans. But my problem with that is it's disconnected from the context of the passage, which is what must I do to inherit eternal life? Mm. And so if what I need to do to inherit eternal life is go and be a good Samaritan, I'm in, I'm in a lot of trouble, Brian, because I've never loved anyone as well as that, that Samaritan loved that man on the road. And so Jesus can't be saying that. And so what is Jesus doing? Well, what, he, what Jesus is doing is he's, he's raising the bar of the law. He's showing how impossible it is. And, and so the message of the Good Samaritan isn't you're a bad guy, no, now go and be a good guy. It's you're a dead guy, and Jesus has come to make you an alive guy. It's not you are a Good Samaritan. No, you go and be a Good Samaritan. The message is you're not a Good Samaritan, but Jesus is a Good Samaritan, and you are that dead man on the road, and Jesus has come to bind up your wounds and save you and deliver you from death. And I think, again, you even see that in the context right after. And Luke does this all the time. He he copies and pastes part of the gospel narrative 
in certain sections to make a theological point. And so right after the parable of the Good Samaritan, you have Mary and Martha, which is quite interesting because I forget the order of this. Is it Martha that's in the kitchen? Yes. And she comes in and complains that Mary is sitting at the feet of Jesus, receiving from him. Absolutely. And Jesus says, no, Martha, you've got it all wrong. You're working, working, working. But Mary has chosen the, the good portion. She is sitting at my feet and receiving from me. It's no coincidence that Luke has placed that after the parable of the Good Samaritan and shows actually what we need is to sit at the feet of Christ and receive from him. Absolutely, yes. And, and, and the thing that we have to come to terms with is that Jesus preached a lot of law, right? So when we look at the accounts of Jesus in the Gospels, yes, they're called the Gospels because in it we see the full display of the Gospel unfold. But that doesn't mean that everything that Jesus said in those books was Gospel. In fact, a lot of it is law, and it wasn't given by Jesus for you to measure yourself to see how well you're stacking up and if you're going to make it in. You know, we're not we're not Muslims, right? We don't believe that there's this scale that tips one way or the, the other, and we have to try really hard to make sure our good things outweigh the bad. No, we are either innocent and spotless, perfect in the eyes of God, or we're guilty, stained by our sins. The single sin that we commit is enough to condemn us. And so what we have to look at when Jesus unfolds his, his narrative is, what is he saying in this passage? Is he proclaiming the law to drive us to Christ, or is he proclaiming good news in the one who satisfies the law for us and gives himself up under the curse of the law and crushed in our place? Which one is it? Because it can't be both. That's great. So why the name Saint and Sinner, Brian? Who's the saint and who's the sinner among us? Well, obviously, I, I would be the saint in this situation. Obvious. Daniel Obvious. over here would die. No, I, I mean, so what we, we're saying here is something that Luther would have championed. And the idea that as a Christian, we're at once a saint, but at the same time, a sinner. This is the unfolding of our Christian life. This is how we experience life in Christ. And so we've been called a saint because Jesus has redeemed us. He has washed us through his blood, through his shed blood on the cross. And we are now perfect in the sight of God, not because of our own ability or our own works, but because Christ himself has brought us together with him and has given us his righteousness, his perfection, and it covers us as if it is our own. We are also still sinners because that old man, that old version of ourselves, with its sin nature that gravitates towards sin, well, that still remains. And, and the two are wrestling with one another, the two natures that, that exist within us. And so you have this saint and sinner kind of battle going on within the Christian. And one of the best places we get to see that is in Paul's first letter to the Corinthians. I, I love how he opens his letter by saying, verse 2, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints. The saints just means a holy one. And you read the letter and you're thinking, man, these guys are anything but holy. <laughs> how, how can Paul begin his letter by saying to the saints, those who are sanctified, and you read it and they're just sinning in every single way possible. An absolute it's, mess. Oh, it's, a, it's, it's the messiest church on planet Earth. It's funny, actually. That, well, it's not funny. It's kind of sad that Clements, um, one of the first letters after 
uh, the New Testament canon uh, had to write another letter to the Corinthians, and it seems that they didn't really <laughs> learn any of their lessons. And so you see both aspects here, don't you, in the letter to the Corinthians? They are saints and they are sinners. And they're saints not because of anything that they do. It's really obvious when you read the letter. They're not called saints because they're great people. They're the saints because Christ has purchased them as his own, and he set them apart as holy. He has washed them in his blood. And so that is their identity. And the whole point of the letter then is, look, you, this is who you are in Christ. You are a saint. Now become who you are. And, and this is really a word of grace, right? The title of this podcast and, and the the doctrine that Luther championed. It's a word of grace to the Christian. We're, we're not sitting here saying, oh, you're called a saint, therefore it's okay to remain in your sin and continue sinning as much as you possibly can, because it doesn't matter you're a saint now. That is not what we're saying. What we are saying is that as a Christian who has been redeemed by grace, you've been called out of that old way, and for the rest of your life on earth, the two will be battling. You will rest in the finished work of Jesus Christ, knowing that you're made perfect in him alone. And because of all he's done for you and the grateful heart that now exists in you, you put to death the sins, the deeds of the flesh, and pursue a life that conforms to Christ. Now, the reason this is a word of grace to the hearer is because it tells you very clearly that you're never going to get rid of that second part. We will work as hard as we can because of the grace of God, but in this life, we will still be sinners. Yeah, and that's actually the message of the new covenant. And so one of the surprising things about the new heart in Ezekiel 36 is Ezekiel says, or God says through Ezekiel, once I've given you that new spirit and that new heart and my law is now on your heart, it says, then you will loathe yourselves because of your sin. He doesn't say, look, now that you've got this new heart, you're just going to go from one mountaintop experience to the next, and you're just going to be nailing the Christian life, and you're not going to fail, and you will have graduated from the school of the gospel. You won't need the gospel anymore. No, he says, actually, when you get the new heart, a sign of a new covenant person is one who mourns over their sin, who hates their sin. That's what that assumes. That assumes I have sin. And, and so and think about the Lord's Prayer. Jesus tells us to pray every day. Father, forgive us for our sins. Why do I need to pray that every day if I don't have sin anymore? And I think this is really liberating, isn't it? To recognize this. It's liberating because all of us realize how much we fall short of the glory of God, how much we fail, not just in what we do, but by what we don't do. And often our motivation is wrong. Sometimes we, we do get it right the first time and the second time, and then we fail on the third time. And a part of that is just because we're so wearied from the fight. A lot of the times we give in to sin because, because it's easier. We want to relax. It's so difficult putting sin to death. And so we realize this about ourselves. And the message that just says, no, you're good enough and be good enough, it's a pretty damning message. Actually, I saw someone recently who was wearing a t-shirt that said, you are good enough. <laughs> and I, and I, only, only last week, and I was thinking about that. Thinking, it's really unhelpful, isn't it? Because as Brian Chappell says, that, that will damn you for two, for two reasons. One, it will make you proud, where you start thinking, you know what? I am good enough. And what you've done there is you've lowered the bar of the law. You've made it easier. And so like the, like the lawyer and the rich young ruler, we say things like, okay, 
I haven't stolen anything from a shop lately. I haven't murdered anyone. I haven't committed literal physical adultery. I'm a pretty good guy. I am good enough. <laughs> enough pride. Or you despair when you realize, wait a minute, no. Jesus says, even when I lust, I've committed adultery. Even when I hate someone in my heart, I've murdered them. As James says, you can obey the entire law, but if you fail at one point of it, you've broken the entire law. And so if, if you're only hearing the message of just be good enough, do good enough, you're going to be despairing. And so the question is, how does Jesus see his broken, bruised, disappointing church? Mm. The apostle Paul would answer, without spot, wrinkle, or blemish. And that includes that grumpy old man on the back pew on Sunday. That includes that gossipy wife during the week. That includes that failing pastor who keeps falling into the same pit of sin. Jesus looks at us and he loves us and he welcomes us to his table to feast on his word and sacrament. I love it. I love it. Uh, a few years ago, I remember having a conversation with an individual who I, I would probably assume was not a Christian or is not a Christian. And he messaged me, private messaged me on Facebook, and we started to talk about the good news of the gospel and how high the law actually goes. And I was explaining to him how none of us are good, none of us are righteous, and we're all guilty because of this perfect law. We can't change the law. The law is exactly the way God explains it in his word. It is perfect. It is high. It's a very high standard. No one can pass the test. And this guy asked me, well, don't you think that that message is a little toxic and maybe can oppress people and make them feel crushed by it? And I said, well, the first part will, but you haven't let me get to the second part. And then I started to explain the good news of Jesus Christ and how that can secure us in a way that our own good works never can. And so individuals who might feel crushed by the law won't feel any better when you try to convince them that they're a good mother or a good father or a good husband or wife or a good friend. Because if that person has a conscience that kind of condemns them in that way, They'll walk away, maybe convinced for one or two minutes, but then that conscience will come back with a vengeance and tell them, yeah, but they don't really know who you are. They don't really know the heart of you and what lies deep down. They don't know all the skeletons in your closet. And so what we're saying is whether you believe it or not, your closet is packed full of skeletons and in your sin, there's nowhere to hide. It's everywhere and it's all encompassing. It stains every part of you. But in Christ, there is one who can remove the stains of sin, who can pour out this grace that washes you clean so that you are spotless, white as snow, unblemished before the eyes of a loving father and secure forever, not because of the things that you do or don't do, but because of the one who came and was given up for you. And that is a message of good news. That's the message we want to declare to everyone in the world. So, so what are we not saying? We're not saying good works don't matter. We're not saying that Jesus has come along and he's abolished the law in the sense of just, look, that was the Old Testament and the Old Covenant. Now this is the New Covenant. I've died. Now go and live how you want. Go and sin. Jesus never said that. So what, what are we saying? Right. So really what we're saying is that we have to look at the law in terms of categories. 
And so both Daniel and I would hold to what's called the three uses of the law. Now, the first use, which we would consider a very primary use of the, of the law, is to show us our sin, be a mirror, to bring the weight of condemnation into our minds so that we would seek for another. Because the law declares to us, we can't do it. We're imperfect. We fail. We're guilty. We need a savior. We need mercy. And so the law drives us in that first sense to Christ. The second sense is the civil use. And that's essentially the way that God restrains sin in the world. He exercises this through governments that enact laws that seem to very often align with God's law. And not saying that their laws are often perfect and that they don't get things wrong, but in a sense, generally, there are certain laws that uphold kind of moral standards and civility in the world. Um, and so that's the second use. And the third use of the law is the ordinary use of the law for the Christian life. It's the general guidelines for how the Christian ought to live their life in response to grace out of a heart of gratitude. And so why this is important is that there are Christians out there who will go to their congregation and hammer them with the first use of the law and never lead them to the cross, never lead them to Jesus Christ. And, and what we are saying is as Christians, we, when you're trying to get me to change, I'm no longer under that first use. It's condemnation's not going to drive me to obedience. Condemnation's going to drive me to Christ, who is the one who took condemnation for me. And so what we realize is, yes, you can have that message where you give the law, crush the people, and then provide the soothing balm of Jesus, but you never leave them there in hopes that that will change the person. Yeah, you never crush someone. You never crush the believer with the first use of the law ever, because the first use of the law comes with the curses of the covenant, doesn't it? You know, this is how you need to live. You haven't done it. You're under the curse of God, and that then drives you to Christ. If you then transfer that over to the third use of the law and say, if you don't obey now that you are saved, you're under the curse of the law. So I've heard preaching like that, Brian. And, you know, I've, and, and maybe uh, those of you who are listening, maybe you've heard that too. Let me just say that that is, that is heresy, actually. It is, it's, it's serious heresy because there is, there is no curse for the believer, which is why in Galatians 3, Paul says Jesus has taken the curse of the law. And so we, yeah, we don't obey out of fear of punishment. One John even says that. You know, we don't have a fear of, of condemnation anymore. That doesn't mean we don't fear God. But we recognize that Romans 2, it's the patience of, of God that leads us to repentance. Or Titus chapter 2, it is the gospel, the grace of God has appeared, teaching us to say no to ungodliness. And so it's when we recognize who God is for me in Christ that enables me to obey him and love him. Because ultimately, obedience isn't obedience if it doesn't come from a heart of love. And so if you think of Pharaoh and the Israelites in, in the book of Exodus, they're obeying Pharaoh, but do they love him? Do they hate him? Uh, they see him as a hard taskmaster. And I reckon that some Christians feel like that about God too. That God is hard and mean. He's sort of like a, a teacher in the heavens, wagging his finger, always disappointed. But we're saying, no, he, he's a father who loves us in Christ before the foundation of the world, before you've done anything, before you were even in the womb, God the Father loved you. And he will continue to love you to the end. And so it's his love. When you realize that, uh, Richard Sibbs, I think, I think says, 
Cold hearts are made warm at the fires of Christ's love. And that, that is where your heart will grow in your love for Jesus. And then you'll be able to obey him because you'll be loving the Lord your God, not just with your mind or your hands or what you say, but from your heart as well. I think it's Brian Chapel who says, he asks the question, why do you sin? Why do you sin? You sin because you love it. So how do I get you to stop sinning? By giving you a greater love. So we all know the passage, or maybe this might be the first time you're hearing it, but a very common known passage is when Jesus tells us, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And so then what we tell people in the congregation sometimes is, okay, you need to love Jesus more so that you can keep his commandments. Without realizing, First John tells us, we love because he first loved us. You want people to stop sinning? Get them to love Jesus. You want them to love Jesus? Tell them about the love that Jesus has for them. He came for us and has accomplished everything we could not. And he has taken the curse on our behalf. We are clean, made spotless in him. That is the love and grace of our Lord. And it can't be taken away from us. It is a perfect and permanent love that will last for eternity. And so now we can rest and love him. Maybe we could spend a bit of time just explaining who we are and uh, how we came to discover the riches of, of God's grace. How about I, I kick us off, Ryan? So I, I grew up in a non-Christian home, and that was my life into my teens and early 20s. But then at the age of 23, I encountered the gospel in Christ, and so received Jesus by faith then. Uh, and, but that, of course, doesn't mean that I had all of my theology ironed out. I was still confused, and I was going to a seeker-sensitive church, but a lot of my friends were what I would call Christian perfectionists. And so they, they were, you know, really hammering home this idea of holiness and come on, you need to be better, do better. And that felt really burdensome and wearying because I was trying to, but I kept falling into the same sin. And I'd, I'd ask these guys to help me, like give, give me some tools to help me be better, you know, and, and not sin. And they would just throw Bible verses at me and say things like, let go and let God. And, you know, you can do this. And I realized I couldn't. And that felt so, so burdening. Until I, I met a, a guy called Luke, and uh, he, he was the one that mentored me. He was a pastor of a Reformed Baptist church, and he put a few books in my hands. One of them was The Gospel by Greg Gilbert, um, and it was just really, really, uh, well, I guess it was really helpful for gospel clarity and realizing that the gospel, well, holiness ultimately is something that Christ has won for me first, and that was really, really liberating and helpful. Uh, that Jesus has obeyed the commands on my behalf. It's not just that when he dies on the cross, he takes away our sin. It's positively, he was the man of faith on my behalf. He was the man of righteousness on my behalf. And that was credited to me as a gift, freely received by faith. And so that, that became a lot clearer. And then I went to a, a Presbyterian Bible college. And it was actually Martin Luther, of all people, that really helped me discover the riches of God's grace, which I, I don't think is much of a surprise. It was his little book called The Freedom of a Christian. And there, Martin Luther talks about the riches of God's grace and it's to be received by faith. And justification is that God sees you as sinless and as perfect as nothing that you can do. And it was through reading that little short little tract that I, I really came to grasp the stuff. Yeah. One final thing to say. So I, I'm a, a, a husband. Uh, my, my wife's name's Brooke. We have three children. And I'm a pastor of a, 
a Suffolk church, um, Stonemarket Baptist church. So, so over to you, Brian. So I'm Brian. I grew up in a home where there was no Christianity spoken about as well. I, I didn't become a Christian until I was in my mid-20s, but off the back of that, I kind of went on a journey of exploring different theological ideas. Uh, I landed myself into a church in England where it was pretty legalistic, pretty crushing on people. Um, what was taught was kind of, uh, you do better you're not enough. If you are failing in this way, you've lost your salvation and now you need to rededicate your life so that God can forgive you again. And and that's actually the church I met my wife in. So it was all she's ever known. And there was a point where I was away in Turkey one time where God really opened my eyes to the unhealthiness of that church. And so we kind of departed from that and moved on. But I wouldn't say my theology was great there either. I still had that kind of remaining feeling that we weren't doing enough. I'm not doing enough. And that kind of led me to feel like I had to go into ministry. You know, I, I felt like that was almost pushing me to, to, tr to become a pastor, to become something more. And it was actually as I was pursuing that path and, you know, I signed up for a Bible college in Wales called Union School of Theology that I stumbled across a podcast called Theocast. It's a, a podcast from the U.S., and they speak about all these wonderful reform topics that we're talking about today. And, and that was the first time, hearing them speak was the first time I actually realized, actually, I can rest. I, I have peace with God. He has given me his righteousness, his perfection. I, I don't have to work my fingers down to the bone to try to be enough. I can trust that Jesus was enough for me and that he gives that to me as a gift by faith alone. And so for the first time in my life, I thought, well, I don't have to do anything more to gain his love and affection, but now I want to. And when I started at the Bible college, they were hammering in these same points. It's a very reformed school, so it was kind of hitting me from all directions. And so I, I remember those moments as really freeing. It, it released me from kind of a bondage, a prison that I, I placed around myself, even as a Christian. And, and that's why we're so um, passionate about getting more people to hear this good news. Now, what do we do now? I, I live here in, in Suffolk in Stowe Market. I'm married to Donna, and we have two boys. And I currently am a member at Bradfield and Ruffin Baptist Church. But one caveat is I'm not a Baptist. I I am a Pado Baptist. I come from probably the continental Dutch Reformed view on things, three forms of unity, um, which are kind of a threefold way of talking about the confessions I hold to. If you don't know what that is, feel free to Google. You'll find you'll find the result at the top. But yeah, so I would say that Daniel and I have more in common than we would with a very large portion of portion of the church. And that's why we we, we feel like it's such a easy thing for us to gel together on a podcast like this. Well, I think that's a good place for us to, to stop and uh, wrap things up. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you again next time. <laughs>